FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, It's been another week in which just a torrent of news has been coming at us fast and furious, Um, much of it, of course, uh, from Ukraine, where the Russian invasion continues. And as you listen to the newscast just ahead of us, um, has gotten uh, more and more troubling. Um, We've been talking a lot about that this week, and we'll do a bit of that during the show today. But it's also an opportunity for us to get back to talking about what's been happening in state politics, especially under the Gold Dome, as the legislative session continues. So we'll mix things up a bit on the show today and are glad that you're here to join us. Um, Patricia Murphy, political reporter and columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us as she is on Fridays. Patricia, thank you so much for joining us. we got to remind people that your column, uh, The Political Insider, appears in the Wednesday and Sunday edition of the AJC, and you oversee the jolt, which people can find on AJC.com and gives us a great uh, look at briefs in political news, some of it really important news, Others just plain interesting news. How are you, Patricia? I'm doing great. Thanks, Bill. Um, we're also joined today by uh, Professor Andra Gillespie. Uh, you know Andra. She's a professor of political science at Emory University and also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Andra, thank you for being here today as well. Morning. Happy to be here. And we're joined by Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University. Also, we hasten to add, the associate chair of the political science department at Georgia State. Amy, thanks for being with us today. By the way, uh, people who listen to the show know that you are a huge fan of Atlanta United. Congratulations on a great opening of the season victory by United last weekend. It was terribly exciting. I'm pleased to be here. And also, wow, Caleb Wiley, our brand new 17-year-old who, in his first 10 minutes of his MLS debut, also got his first goal. Very, so. Yeah, it was exciting. It was really thrilling to get to it watch It was fantastic. I, I got to watch it on TV. You, of course, wouldn't miss being there to see it in person. Uh, all right, let's get... No, I, I would not. Okay. Um, Patricia, let's get right to a big story that's uh, developing down at the Capitol today. Um, We have certainly talked on this show a lot about the fact that there are at least four bills which in many ways will uh, uh, limit how teachers can talk about controversial, difficult subjects, uh, race, uh, bigotry, slavery, other subjects that uh, some parents worry and legislators worry might make their students feel a little bit uncomfortable and as if they're to blame for uh, historical problems that have faced uh, the United States. One of those bills is making its way to this floor of the House and will be voted on today, correct? Yes, that's right. 
That's right. This is a bill from uh, State Representative Will Wade, who is a former member of the school board up in Dawson County. So he comes at this from that perspective. Um, he also comes at it from a very conservative perspective. And I think we're going to hear a very um, possibly emotional, certainly heated conversation about this on the state house floor. Two different versions of this bill have been going through the House and Senate. And at issue is really um, what is divisive, what is appropriate content, and who gets to decide those questions? Should it be the teachers? Should it be the parents? Uh, should it be the school board? Should it be state lawmakers? Um, I would venture to say it should not be state lawmakers because uh, these debates themselves have been very divisive. Um, but it does raise this question um, that has been a real political hot button issue over the last year, at least probably two years, um, is exactly what's going on in those school rooms. In Virginia, um, this is what's fueling this. In Virginia, the governor's race up there really began to center on this question. And Republicans won that race with the new governor, Glenn Youngkin. And Republicans are really looking to uh, replicate that victory on the issue and also in the elections in 2022. Um, we also know, Andre, that, that, that this uh, legislation, uh, really all of these measures, are uh, a typical of something, that, a, a phenomenon that has developed in uh, Republican Party politics particularly. And that is Republican think tanks like the Heritage Foundation uh, develop a series of measures that they think will be uh, advantageous to Republicans in state houses around the country. I, I'm not denying that they may believe some of what they put out there is, in fact, significant, but, but they also recognize that these are election uh, hot-button issues. And the Heritage Foundation is one of the groups that certainly has helped create some of the language that we're seeing in uh, the uh, bill that will be up for debate today and the others moving forward, Andra. Well, you know, I don't want to discount uh, the intellectual role that the Heritage Foundation plays in operating as a think tank, but right now it's operating as an interest group. And so this is actually part and parcel of what lobbyists do. They actually help legislators write legislation. They help to uh, sort of share the um, administrative and the work burden that goes in, in, into making legislation. And so it's not uncommon at all for interested parties to help draft legislation and then to go find a, a, you know, a legislator who's actually willing to sponsor that legislation, perhaps put their own stamp on it. We've seen it, you know, in other issues. It's the reason why, uh, you know, transgender sports rules uh, uh, laws have proliferated in terms of their proposals. We've also seen it on the other side. So, for instance, if we look at the Crown Act, so it's an act that would ban discrimination based on hair texture and hairstyle. That is an idea that has proliferated, right? And it starts in one place and then you see other states adopt it. And interest groups tend to be very central to that process as well. So this isn't a surprise that they're involved. Amy, uh, let me read from Tai Tagami, reporter for the AJC, a colleague of Patricia's, uh, his uh, story about this uh, measure today. And, and he really combines it with other measures that are going to be debated uh, as well. Uh, he says, in numerous hearings over the past few weeks, both Representative Wade and his fellow Republican, Senator Bo Hatchett, have been pushed for evidence of widespread problems with teaching about race and other issues. Um, and and it's, they essentially say that they can't find any specific examples of why it's important uh, to have legislation like this in its place. I think Wade points uh, to a, an old Gwinnett County 
uh, uh, report that suggested that did use the term critical race theory in a in a suggested curriculum, but it was never instituted. It never went anywhere. So they're having a hard time finding a, a real a problem to address here, aren't they? They are a bit. And one of the things that is confusing also is that there's multiple bills going around that are all really about different things. So HB 1084 is focused on the idea basically that no one in a school should discriminate or treat someone badly based on their race. That is already law right, under multiple uh, federal and state statutes. And so it's a little bit unclear on this particular one what it is getting at, because it's less about the teaching of particular topics, and it's much more about sort of treatment. So it talks about you're not allowed to tell a student that they are inferior because they are of a certain race. Um, And that we already have. Now, separately, there are other bills which really do get at certain types of concepts. For example, SB 377 talks specifically about not being able to teach the idea that there is something called systemic racism or institutional racism, right? So the concept that it is embedded uh, within the structures or even within the statutes that exist. And then finally, there's also the Parents' Bill of Rights, which is sort of what it's being called, which is a wholly separate bill. And this one is about access for parents to be able to see the content of what their students are learning. That's not in the bills that we're talking about right now. That's actually in a totally separate bill. And it's the idea that by seeing that information, you could potentially uh, block something that may be problematic. Now, again, I do want to be clear that There is nothing in that Parents' Bill of Rights that actually isn't already allowed under current law and current uh, school board policies. Um, You have access to that. And I mean, I'll just say as an APS parent, like all I have to do is log on and I can see, right, all of the things that they're assigning, all the worksheets that they're doing. Um, It is there, but it's all sort of part and parcel. And so part of what is difficult is separating out what each of them does and also the implications of them. Right. What happens if, for example, right, if this is what we're trying to prevent, also, what is the triggering mechanism? So a couple of these bills, one of the things, um, number one, the punishments can be quite large. But the other issue is also what is enough to cause there to be an inquiry Um, and what kind of burden is that going to put, for example, on the teacher who now has to worry if I talk about this topic, is that going to now get me in trouble, get have parent complaints lodged and things like that. Uh, Patricia, obviously a lot of the attention justifiably has been focused on teaching of race, teaching of white privilege, teaching about slavery and not uh, make and not making white students feel guilty as though they're somehow responsible uh, for uh, slavery. But but there are other organizations who represent other uh, groups that have weighed in on this. For instance, there are Jewish organizations who are concerned that teaching the Holocaust could be terribly uncomfortable to students. And, and perhaps teachers, although they won't be disallowed under the measure from teaching about things like this, they may be looking over their shoulder and worrying about how their teaching uh, may come into conflict with these laws, right? That's right. And that really is, um, to me, what is hard about passing a bill uh, that gets into the details of what is taught in each individual classroom without having a myriad of unintended consequences at the same time. And even the intended consequences 
are inappropriate in some people's minds as well. Um, but during the debate over the Senate bill, which does get into uh, teaching divisive concepts, a black lawmaker said, well, what about um, Confederate themed mascots? Isn't that divisive? If we're going to go in and prevent divisive, <clears throat> excuse me, prevent divisive concepts from even being discussed and raised by a teacher, isn't it divisive to have those concepts actually implemented and exhibited by a mascot. And the Republican on the other side said, well, now that's pretty touchy. I think once you start talking about mascots, people are going to get offended by that. Um, and that is why this is not really the, the appropriate fodder, in my opinion, for lawmaking, um, it, other than to talk about sort of an established framework or a way for a school board or local elected officials to deal with these um, at a local level. Um, it really uh, does show why it's um, a tricky area and why um, even when you are trying to keep things from being that are things that are divisive, that is entirely the opinion of anybody in that room. Um, and then that particular bill gets into the question of, well, the teacher may answer a question about a divisive topic, but they must do that in a way that does not show preference for either side. Th that is simply not the role or of the legislature to tell a teacher exactly how to answer a question, um, because there's no way to do that properly without getting into a number of other problems um, that you're creating in the in the process. Well, and it also raises issues about whether teachers are professionals who have developed a certain expertise to have uh, an ability to teach about things they are. I, I've said on the show once before, it's kind of like if I went into the dentist with my uh, uh, son or daughter and the dentist said, I think they need a tooth filled. And I said, no, you know, I look at their teeth and I, I think they can get by without it. It's really not all that dissimilar. Andre, let me take a step back and go to where in what I think in many ways uh, triggered all of this uh, concern among especially conservative Republicans about teaching of race and how it's taught. And we have to go back to the remarkable 1619 project that the New York Times uh, uh, developed, um, I, th I, I don't know, I think around 2019, you may know better than I. Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, oversaw that entire project, and essentially her point was that we had to look at the history of this country through um, the fact that until the slaves were essentially freed, we were not living in a true democracy. And I think that began, a, there was a tremendous backlash uh, to that. So talk to us a bit about the way you saw that unfold. Well, the 1619 Project was this remarkable uh, series of articles. It was first published in the New York Times Magazine, and it's become its own project and its own curriculum after that. And it was uh, launched to coincide with the 400th anniversary of the first slave's arrival at Jamestown in 1619. Um, and so the whole point is, if we want to look at the foundations and origins of America, yes, 1776 is important. Uh, the Declaration of Independence is important, but American society um, was started um, at this moment that you were starting to see slaves coming to Virginia. So you see this first permanent colony sort of of, of, of English settlers coming in. So they're coming in Virginia. They're going to come a couple of years later in Massachusetts. And in the Virginia colony, slavery becomes a bedrock of what's going on there. And it reflects some changes in historiography. So when I was in, in um, undergrad, I was taught that slavery really starts in the United States around 1640. So the first blacks who were being brought 
are uh, uh, are indentured servants. They have the ability to be able to win their freedom and to move into society. But by 1640, there is a, a rebellion of uh, white and black indentured servants. And then this is when slavery basically gets codified. Well, in talking with my friends who are historians, they have now found new historiography that actually pushes that back. And it notes, for instance, that those um, indentured servants who were brought uh, to Virginia were actually being, were kidnapped from another slave ship. So it was, these were people who were always intended to be slaves who were brought to Jamestown Colony, who had life chances and a trajectory that was very different from the whites who were sort of, you know, indenturing themselves to come over from England, Ireland, or Scotland. So, you know, it's important for us to understand that slavery has been at the foundation of the American story as much as Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and all of those stories. And what Nicole Hannah-Jones wants to do is to remind us of that. Now, to be fair, I think the historian's critique of her interpretation of the Revolutionary War is legitimate and needs to be considered. But this does not mean that her idea of we can't talk about America without talking about slavery, which means we go back to 1619, isn't a completely valid historic point that needs to be taken seriously. And just because people are getting their feelings hurt about it doesn't mean that we should stop having this conversation. I, you know what, it, it, Amy, it strikes me that the way in which Andra just uh, uh, framed that is exactly why open debate is so important. Not everything that Nicole Hannah-Jones, she won the Pulitzer Prize, but not everything she lays out there is um, uh, untouchable. People can debate some of what she had to say, and it's in the debate that we become richer and more knowledgeable. I think that's one of the most interesting things about this whole uh, uh, concern about what we should and shouldn't teach in our schools. No, that is a great way to frame it, and especially the way that Andra presented it, because, right, I mean, obviously I'm an academic, but the way that we look at it is that, yes, right, people bring forth evidence, and then we are able to debate that evidence, and we debate that evidence on the merits. And while there may be opinions that we all have or beliefs, at the end of the day, what we have to look to is what the evidence shows us, what the evidence tells us, and looking at sort of the strength and relative merits of it. And that is, in fact, precisely what we should be doing in the classroom. We should be able to present this. And yes, we should, in fact, present both sides. We should allow the students to read the 1619 Project and the critiques that have been written by certain historians to match it up, to have a discussion, to teach them how to weigh the evidence, to right, perhaps even go back to the original source materials and say, what do you think, right? You're now reading this. This is what they each read. What conclusions do we draw from it and where do we go from it? And that's what a lot of this is about, that ability to have these discussions and to also recognize that there are, in fact, multiple valid interpretations that can at times be drawn. And it is the job of educators to teach our students how to assess that information. Um, the other side, and I'll just say this really quickly, that I always tell my students, look, I'm going to force you to argue the side you disagree with, mm. because that is the only way that you will truly understand your argument and be able to defend it. Um, okay, let's let's take up uh, uh, just a couple of other, uh, in much briefer form, uh, issues that uh, this week uh, uh, rose to the surface at the legislature. Uh, Patricia, uh, a bill that would uh, make it far more difficult for pregnant women in Georgia to obtain the abortion pill through the mail, something which the Biden administration authorized 
uh, quite some time ago saying uh, it, during the pandemic, women ought to be able to get this abortion pill by, by mail. They need a prescription, but they, there was an easy road for doing it. The bill that has advanced in the Senate would, in fact, put up a lot of obstacles to women being able to get that pill. Yes? Uh, yes, that's right. So during the pandemic, the requirement that there be an in-person visit uh, was lifted because obviously there were no in-person visits in order for somebody to obtain these abortion medications. So instead, people were still required, women were still required to have a doctor's appointment, a visit, but it was a telehealth visit. And doctors I spoke with um, said that during those two years, they did not have any major problems. They didn't really have any minor problems. They said that a telehealth visit for this type of medication, in their opinion, was still quite sound. And there were um, a number of medical professionals who agreed with that. Um, there were uh, you know, one or two doctors at this particular Senate hearing who said, I still have some concerns about this. Um, and then the other doctor said, well, then you should ask your uh, patients to come in for an in-person visit. Um, there, weren't, there was no evidence of it being a significant problem in retrospect over the last two years. Um, however, the um, state Senate now has approved this to now require that in-person visit again. It also requires an ultrasound exam. Um, it also requires a follow-up appointment. Um, take this situation to the next level. If Georgia's current six-week abortion ban, which is um, reinstituted if uh, something happens at the Supreme Court that would um, make that possible to go forward. It's currently held up in litigation, but if it were able to be implemented, the requirement to have an in-person visit would make this almost impossible for women who are less than six, week six weeks pregnant to then go in, get an in-person visit, and then have this prescribed to them. Um, so there are current uh, uh, obstacles that it certainly does put up for pregnant women. And then there are even more significant obstacles if that is paired with the other legislation the lawmakers have already passed. You know, Amy and Andrew, one of the things that's interesting about this legislation, uh, I think, is that before the session started, um, uh, David Ralston, uh, other Republican legislative leaders said they really didn't want to go any, go any further with abortion restrictions this session. They already had passed the six-week uh, ban, uh, which of course is, is still mired down by uh, by by court uh, 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 cases moving forward, um, and they didn't really want to get into it. But this is an example that the leadership it, it doesn't always get what it wants because people in the legislature have got to play to their base. So, Amy, uh, it, I get why this uh, bill will be of some value if you're running in a primary campaign as a Republican against uh, an opponent. Uh, but I wonder what it does when the general election comes along and how uh, a majority of women in Georgia are going to see it as an issue to vote upon. And that's going to be one of the big issues with a lot of these bills. Um, and we can think of it more broadly. So on one level, for the members of uh, Senate and House seats, many of them are either very firmly Republican or Democratic. And so what they have to worry about really is their primary race and less so about the general election. There are some seats which are a little bit more up in flux. And those are, to be perfectly blunt, the members that you're also seeing being much more hesitant about these bills, right? Generally, they're around Metro Atlanta. 
The other side of it, though, is the question you're raising is a really good one for those who are running statewide, right? While bills such as this are going to help perhaps stave off a primary challenger or win uh, in the primary, the question becomes, how do you now present yourself to the general public when you're trying to also win their votes, when you're going beyond your base and instead trying to reach out to moderate Republicans or even uh, moderate Democrats to say, vote for me, support me, and somewhat distance yourself from these uh, positions that you've taken, which were really, again, playing to those primary bases. And that's true for right members on both sides. Andra, I want to be careful here uh, because this isn't just a partisan political issue. And here's what I mean by that. We know there are people of goodwill who truly believe that abortion is wrong, um, and, and they have uh, devoted enormous amounts of their time and energy to fighting against abortion. So I want to be careful to say that we know abortion is a thorny, difficult issue to deal with, but unfortunately, it does become part of the partisan fodder in an election year. Yeah, I mean, I think that the larger issue here is will this affect uh, the women's vote? And I think it's important for us to realize that women aren't the same type of cohesive voting bloc that, say, African-American voters are, um, and that there are plenty of, of Republican women and plenty of, of pro-life women who, you know, would be perfectly fine with this. I think what we're seeing here is is, is not just places where uh, Speaker Ralston might not hold full sway over the Republican delegation, but you're also seeing people anticipating that the Supreme Court is going to make changes uh, to abortion rights uh, this spring. And it's going to give states a lot more latitude in terms of what types of abortion services they're going to allow. And so what we're going to see is a patchwork of different policies where some states are going to have very, very liberal policies. Other states are going to have very, very conservative policies. And Georgia's likely to be on the conservative end of it. And so these legislators are proposing making it even more difficult uh, for women to be able to uh, receive abortion care, particularly if the six-week ban ends up sort of being um, ruled unconstitutional and kind of gets codified at the 15-week ban, which is what is at stake in, in, in the Mississippi um, bill that's actually coming up before the Supreme Court. So they might not be able to say you can't have an abortion, uh, you know, in the first trimester, but they might be able to say you can't get it by mail. You have to go in in person to make it more difficult for people to be able to, 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 to get that procedure. Okay. Um, we're going to have to get to uh, our first break of the show. Um, there are a number of other issues that are bubbling up and continue to move forward. Paramutual wagering seems to be uh, emerging as the form of gambling that uh, uh, voters across state may uh, be asked to vote on in the November elections, whether they want to legalize horse race betting here in the state. Constitutional carry is moving forward. But Patricia, before we get to a break, I want to look at, at just briefly at least, on, on a story that is a good news story. Your column, which is posted today on the AJC website and will appear in the newspaper on Sunday, is about the mental health bill. David Ralston's, I think, omnibus mental health bill is an appropriate term to use for it, that is moving forward. And you write today uh, about the emotions of legislators as they have looked at this measure. And I think it's worth a minute or two for you to tell us about it. Oh, thank you so much, Bill. So I cover I cover a number of legislative hearings. That's what I uh, find 
especially interesting. Uh, I'm uh, in a smaller number of reporters who feel that way. But so I love to go to these hearings. I like to see who has input on the bills. Um, and covering this Health and Human Services Committee in the State House, um, it became abundantly clear very quickly that this issue of mental health is something that affected um, almost every lawmaker on that committee in some capacity, either with a their own professional work, um, with a loved one, with their own experience. Um, the chair of the committee, Sharon Cooper, has talked about her growing up with a stepmother who was um, paranoid schizophrenic. She has her own insight into this issue and the struggles that family ha families have. Um, but one person who testified to this committee was named Tracy Jones, and her husband, Todd Jones, is a uh, member of the House who has helped to craft this mental health bill. And it's very sweeping. It deals with the mental health system in Georgia that has serious, significant flaws at almost every level of conception and delivery. Um, and Todd Jones and Tracy Jones, I did an interview with them and they told me about their son, Justin Jones, who is 25 and has struggled with um, really severe mental health issues um, since he was in high school. And they have had him in and out of facilities for, uh, more than 30 times. There is a critical lack of inpatient beds in Georgia. They often had to leave the state to get him help. Um, even when they were able to get him help, there are pieces of the system that allow um, people over 18 to check themselves out. They consistently have run-ins with law enforcement. And so this committee with Speaker Ralston's um, support and encouragement is really focusing on who they call uh, the familiar faces, uh, the, the faces that people in ERs, county jails, even street corners, they see these faces over and over, people in continual crisis. And so this is an effort to try and help them get what they need to start to live um, even sustainable and hopefully fuller, successful lives. Um, we will post a link to your column on our uh, social media today. Uh, and then, of course, people can read it in the Sunday newspaper. David Ralston has said that this is the single most important piece of legislation uh, in his mind that will be debated uh, this session. And it certainly appears that it will emerge as the best news, the, the, the most important good news story from this year's legislative session. Uh, let's take a quick break and come back with more in just a moment. Um, we're back with more on Political Rewind. Amy Steigerwald, Andre Gillespie, Patricia Murphy joined me for the show today. Uh, I said earlier in the week that we recognize at Political Rewind that global news, international news, is not our forte, uh, that uh, we focus mostly on state news, national news filtered through a Georgia perspective. But the, but the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, caused us to think about how we could bring you information that might be useful to you here in Georgia. And thank goodness we have a number of experts in the city of Atlanta, in the state, who can talk knowledgeably uh, about what's happening there. On Monday, uh, former Senator Sam Nunn was here to talk about his perspective on all of this. And uh, then uh, later in the week, uh, four-star retired General Philip Singleton, who was the Supreme Commander of NATO, gave us a, a perspective and a history of Ukraine that was really uh, fascinating to all of us. I mention this now for a couple reasons. One, to say both of those interviews are available either on our podcast or on our website. And I invite you to go 
uh, listen to them. I think you'll find them uh, to be really meaningful. But I also mention it, uh, Patricia, because uh, we're not the only ones who decided that it was worth uh, bringing Ukraine into the political uh, conversations here in Georgia. Uh, we have a couple examples of that. Uh, legislators at the Capitol have used the invasion of Ukraine to uh, promote the fact that we need constitutional carry, the right to carry a concealed weapon without a license. And David Perdue's campaign said uh, this, quote, this event is about highlighting the need. She, he was at a pro-gun rally uh, that Marjorie Taylor Greene sponsored. This event is about highlighting the need to protect the Second Amendment and expand our God-given right to bear arms. Given the invasion in Ukraine, we see, we see the need to protect it uh, now more than ever. So uh, that's interesting. Before we talk about it, Stacey Abrams came under fire from Republicans when she appeared on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah and said this. When I'm fo focusing on the voting system, my focus should never be on who you cast your ballot for. Voting itself, the process is nonpartisan. We are a stronger nation when we allow people to participate. And if we ever doubted that, the war that Putin is waging against Ukraine, President Zelensky said, and I'm going to paraphrase him probably poorly, he said, this isn't a war on Ukraine. This is a war on democracy in Ukraine. When we allow democracy to be overtaken by those who want to choose who can be heard, mm -hmm. and th those choices are not based on anything other than animus or inconvenience, then that is wrong. So in any case, talk to us, Patricia, in general, about that whole uh, issue of using the Ukraine as uh, political fodder here. Yeah, so the first time I saw this come up was earlier this week when the constitutional carry gun bill was being debated on the Senate floor, and that's the bill to lift the requirement to have a permit um, to carry a concealed weapon here in Georgia. And uh, multiple Republicans went to the microphone and said, um, if you think that having your gun rights isn't important, ask somebody in Ukraine. And at that very moment, we had all seen the video on the news earlier that morning of Ukrainian citizens being um, issued if they wanted their own machine guns so that they could take aim and fire on Russian troops if they came into their cities and villages. And so that was the nature, uh, that was the context of that conversation. I was surprised at the time um, that we were uh, equating American gun rights with Ukrainians being attacked by Russians. Um, but Stacey Abrams, I think, said something very similar from her own point of view about voting rights and um, the need to protect and strengthen democracy. I don't want to discount the emotion that uh, everybody who is using Ukraine in these contexts um, really do see it that way. They really do see what's happening in Ukraine as their reason for fighting for what they see as a way to protect democracy here at home. What makes me uncomfortable about all of these lines of argument is that uh, the gun right argument and the voting rights argument are in a context of defending Americans against other Americans. Yeah. And the democracy in Ukraine is being attacked by Russians and an external threat rather than an internal threat. That's what makes me uncomfortable about that comparison generally. I think we all are so worried and sympathetic and terrorized for the people of Ukraine. I don't feel that way about other Americans. Um, and I think we can make our own constitutional arguments apart from that context. Uh, Amy? 
as Patricia said, what becomes concerning, right, is this idea of that we're sort of seeing other Americans as the enemy, because if we see them as the enemy, then how would you come to the table and talk with them and discuss and debate things um, in a good nature um, and where it goes from that? I, I think what is also difficult is that there are there are a number of people who view what happened on January 6th as within that same vein, that that was sort of a violent attempt to wage war on American democracy, um, and that that is something that we need to protect, and that's where that linkage um, possibly comes in. Um, on the other side of it, though, obviously, right, that it's it's not the same in the sense of an invading army force that is trying to dominate with ways that are horrifically mirroring what happened in World War II and the start of that, um, and that we need to really sort of come together. And I think the broader point maybe is that, you know, sort of going to sort of to, to build on what Patricia was sort of intimating is that this is also a time where really we all sort of do need to come together and figure out where are we, where are we standing on this, right? Are we supporting, right, sort of showing unity and that the, that we want to stand behind Ukraine and stop, right, what is in fact a unjustified invasion, right, of their sovereignty and their country. Andre, I think one of the things we do have to say uh, coming out of uh, uh, Amy's comments right now are that um, as much as we have uh, some uh, uh, Georgia political uh, uh, folks who are, you know, real strong Donald Trump adherents, uh, we have not heard in Georgia uh, Republicans who have chosen to go down the Trump road and, uh, and in fact, praise Vladimir Putin, uh, talk about uh, the Russians in, in a way uh, that uh, is favorable to them, with one exception, which you and I are going to talk about in just a few minutes. But for the most part, uh, Republicans seem to understand you don't want to go there with Donald Trump on this. Well, I mean, yeah, and I think that that actually does make the tie clearer. While I agree with Amy and Patricia uh, that an invasion is a lot different than the internal strife that we face, we shouldn't forget that if Vladimir Putin could have achieved this ends by having uh, Russian dissidents sort of and separatists actually start to foment civil war, right, he would have done that. And in fact, the fake news that he did to kind of justify invading Ukraine was I'm going in to protect Russian interests because these Russian nationalists really want to be a part of my country. So he's using sort of internal strife fake internal strife as a justification for coming in and protecting people who he believes as his nationals. And I think that that type of destabilizing mentality is something that we need to be mindful of because we, us and them, each other all the time in ways that are politically um, uh, malignant and, uh, and are actually causing lots of trouble in our society. And so Stacey Abrams isn't saying things that are different from what other people are saying. I was a friend shared a quote, a tweet uh, from the comedian George Wallace last night that suggested that people who are all for Ukrainian democracy but don't want to shore up American democracy are being hypocritical. And I'm cleaning that one up because he said it in a somewhat profane way. <laughs> but, um, but it, you know, I, I think that sentiment is there that like there are people who take 
use opportunities like this to make partisan pot shots. And I think we should decry that. But on the other hand, if we care about democracy in Ukraine, if we care about their autonomy, their self-determination, then we should care about it here in elections where people are actually actively trying to undermine vote counts and the ability of other people to be able to cast their votes. All right. Andrew Gillespie gets the last word on this segment of Political Rewind. We're going to take a break, but before we do, um, we're going to say goodbye to both Patricia Murphy and Amy Steigerwald. They both have uh, obligations to go off to, and uh, so we're going to uh, let them do just that. Uh, Patricia, of course, we always love having you on uh, the Friday Political Rewind. I think you're going off to watch a school play. Yes, it's the third grade school play, and I do not want to be late. Thank you, Bill, for understanding. And Amy Staggerwald, <laughs> you, in your position as associate chair of the political science department, are going off to a political science department meeting. What fun that sounds like, Amy. <laughs> I am wearing my Georgia State blue because this is our first in-person meeting since February 2020. Wow. So well, it's terribly exciting. Well, thank you both uh, for uh, being part of the show today. Uh, Andre, you and I are going to continue. We're going to talk a little bit about two editorials that really, really blast Marjorie Taylor Greene. We'll do that after these messages. Andre Gillespie, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene has accomplished again this week what she seems to love most, which is doing something outrageous that gets her in the national political spotlight. But that said, at a certain point, you can't help but wonder uh, if this is going to start working against her and against the Republican Party. Uh, Both the Atlanta Journal-Constitution this week and more important for her, the Rome News Tribune, which uh, publishes in her district, right where she lives, really blistered her. And I want to read just a little of it and then ask you to comment. Um, And, of course, all this is triggered by the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene headlined a conference this week of an organization, a white supremacist organization, according to groups that monitor uh, uh, hate activity, uh, run by a guy named Nick Fuentes, who the Justice Department has said is a white supremacist, in which uh, the uh, attendees cheered on Russia in their invasion of Ukraine, in which Fuentes said that white men were the secret sauce that make his organization powerful. Green later said to a CBS News reporter that uh, she didn't she didn't go along with all of what they said about Russia, but she wasn't going to let quote a few off color remarks change her feelings about the organization. And here's what the Rome Tribune, News Tribune said. Marjorie Taylor Greene, our representative in Congress, recently appeared as a guest at this conference. Um, and she, they say, um, I'm sorry, I've lost my, my way. Oh, in the past, we have criticized Congresswoman Greene for what we believe are outlandish antics aimed more at propelling her celebrity than representing her district. She's using her national platform for personal advancement and fame. Um, we do not say this gladly or take this issue lightly. Her antics have brought embarrassment to a district that deserves and is entirely capable of producing better representation. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is popular in that district, but talk to us about whether you think there's going to be a price to pay at some point. 
Um, well, I, I do think that in the long run, there's a shelf life to her antics. Um, you know, I just use a former congressman, Steve King of Iowa, as an example. So he spent years um, in Congress and eventually, like, you know, he made one racist statement too many. And finally, even Republican leadership got tired of him. So I do think that this will eventually fade out. I think the larger question is, is how long will that take? So she's in her first term. Um, you know, uh, you know, she's in a, a very safe district. How long will it take um, a Republican challenger to rise up against her and be able to successfully challenge her? Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm not holding my breath that that's going to happen immediately. Um, I think it will happen eventually. And I think the larger question is how much damage is done to the reputation of the district? And in particular, how ineffective is she going to be at being able to do the types of of constituent services and bring the types of legislative uh, rewards that, you know, more diligent uh, members of Congress are able to do through their committee work and through their attentiveness to substantive legislation and not just parliamentary procedures that, you know, try to shut down Congress and do all of the things that she's known for doing. Uh, she was criticized this week uh, by leadership. Uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, uh, called her out for appearing with this group, which is surprising because McCarthy's been quiet about her antics in the past. Um, and Mitch McConnell also uh, said there was no room for uh, members of his party to be involved with an organization like Nick Fuente's group. Um, and yet McCarthy has said that if Republicans take the majority in the fall, he'll put her back on the committees that she was stripped of because of past behavior uh, uh, she was taken off of. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting issue uh, that Republicans are dealing with here uh, because McCarthy is certainly going to want her vote if he is in a position to become Speaker of the House. At the same time, Democrats are now looking at whether or not they ought to make uh, green and Lauren Boebert of Colorado, another one of the kind of outlandish uh, members of the House, uh, big issues in the midterms and try to try to uh, uh, tag Demo uh, Repu uh, uh, Demo uh, Republican candidates uh, to their extremist views. Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Democrats use Boebert and Green as chivalrous in the same way that Republicans use Al Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and the rest of the members of the squad, um, and, you know, in this in a similar type of way. That's part and parcel of politics and trying to uh, uh, highlight the extremism on on either side of the aisle as a as a justification for your own party's uh, electoral chances. Uh, but I think that there's a really important opportunity that Republicans are missing in terms of not forcefully addressing this type of behavior, in part because they are afraid of the base that these types of candidates bring to the table and also because they're worried about Donald Trump. There comes a point at which you have to put principle um, ahead of partisanship. Um, and, you know, the first time that Marjorie Taylor Greene took a picture with a white supremacist and it got called out, right, you might be able to, for you know, uh, uh, brush that off as, as ignorance and give somebody the grace and the opportunity to learn. But when you keep on doing it, right, sooner or later, this is actually part of their ingrained behavior. And I'm not here to judge whether or not this is all a part of an act. This has now become her brand. It is who she is. Um, and if Republican leadership can't, uh, you know, can't address that, take advantage of it, discipline her appropriately um, because of it, then that suggests that that leadership is as feckless as they claim Joe Biden is. And so that's the part that I think is sad because when 
You look at people like Kevin McCarthy and people like uh, Mitch McConnell, people who've had long-standing careers, right? It's a shame that they uh, uh, don't use the political capital that they have to be able to enforce uh, better norms within their own party. Um, we should uh, talk about how this has played into the governor's race. David Perdue actually attended, I mentioned it a few minutes ago, a rally that Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, led, uh, a Second Amendment rally. He said he was there because uh, Second Amendment is so important he had to go, but he didn't go on and criticize her for her participation in that event. At the same time, uh, Governor Kemp's office issued this statement. Governor Kemp believes there is absolutely no place in our state or the Republican Party for white supremacy, anti-Semitism, or hate of any kind. Ultimately, Green is accountable to the voters of the 14th District at the ballot box every two years. And, by the way, Herschel Walker backed out of the rally that Marjorie Taylor Greene was holding. So uh, Republicans are starting to uh, – we're starting to see them divided over the kind of extremist behavior that she uh, embodies. Yeah, I mean, and I think it is somewhat telling uh, that David Perdue continued to appear with her while other candidates who are in much stronger positions in their primaries uh, chose this as an opportunity to put some distance between themselves um, and Green. Um, I think that that's showing you kind of the state of the race. And this seems on Perdue's part to be kind of a ploy to try to win her base in an attempt to try to salvage uh, a campaign that looks to be uh, floundering right now. Um, and so I think Purdue is just going to have to have to ask himself, uh, is he making too many compromises that he won't actually recognize himself or his principles at the end of this primary election, whether or not he wins? Those are the long term questions that I think are in short supply, um, actually, on both sides of the political aisle. But it's particularly apparent right now amongst Republicans. And so this is something where I know there are many Republicans of goodwill who know better and can do better, but they seem to be afraid to take the step. And yeah, some of you are going to lose elections, but on the other hand, you'd have your principal on the other side. You might be able to live to fight another day despite the loss. Uh, okay. I'm going to go way, way out on a limb here, Andre, and I'm glad you're the one I'm sharing this with because you'll set me straight. Okay. I recognize that Donald Trump-supported candidates uh, in the primaries are going to be an opportunity for us to assess whether he is still the most powerful Republican in the land. I get that. Will David Perdue win the primary because he has Trump's backing, for example? But I also – the reason I'm suggesting going out on a limb here, I really have started to wonder whether – the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the horrors that we've seen unfold, the way in which Trump reacts to it by calling uh, 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 Putin a genius, uh, so smart, um, behavior like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene getting involved with this hate organization. I can't help but wonder if we might be seeing the beginning of a turning point, despite his popularity right now, where the Republican Party is moving away from, from the Trump antics. Um, so they may be moving away from Trump antics. I think the larger question is whether or not they move away from Trumpism, which I doubt is actually going to happen. And here's the thing. If I wanted to try to set this up, one of the things that's going to confound most primary results, actually all of them, since they're all taking place after uh, the Ukrainian invasion, is it may not just be Ukraine. 
it may also be the stuff that's coming out from the January 6th commission, where now the January 6th committee is, is outright saying that there was a, con a criminal conspiracy at which Donald Trump was a very key player and whether or not that might actually cause Republicans to provide distance. So sort of in a modeling type of standpoint, there's a confounding variable that's going on here. But my hypothesis is, is that we could see that Trump didn't have mojo in earlier elections. It was just coincidental that he picked that he picked winners. And that would be the tell. Honor Gillespie, I'm really glad you uh, shared the, your thoughts on that with us and so happy as always to have you here on Political Rewind. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, we're completely Thank out you. of time uh, for today's show. Um, I hope you all out there have a, a good weekend. Um, we'll be watching news from Ukraine, from the state capitol, to talk about it on the show next week. Before we go, I want to give my thanks, as always, to uh, my Political Rewind team, Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Burmistawes, Jesse Neiswanger, but also the uh, TV team, Dennis Buchanan, Alex Word, Jeff Bonk, Taylor Klotz, Aaron Rothwell, James Turner, Matthew Wolf, Regan Smith. Thank you for the way in which you help bring this show on Friday nights to GPB. TV. That's it for us today. See you next week. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and please stay healthy. Bye-bye.